0: Uh, If you are just joining us, we are in the last sermon in a sermon series that we've simply called Practices. Our conviction here is that the Christian faith is not just an intellectual set of ideas, although it does involve ideas. The Christian faith is a way of life. The Christian faith is a practice. It involves action. We're supposed to take these words and do them. And so over the past six weeks, we've been talking about how a healthy set of practices or a healthy set of disciplines have two aims. They connect us to Jesus for the sake of the world. And we've considered a few practices so far. We've talked about dwelling in Christ. We've talked about table habits and forgiveness and testimony and Sabbath. And today we're gonna add one last practice, although there's many more we could look at. We think this one is essential. The practice of being with the least. As we've read from Matthew 25, being with the least means that we meet others in their need, that we care for them as if we're caring for Christ himself. And so the big idea I want to explore this morning is this. The practice of being with the least is connecting with Christ in our shared poverty. So if you do have a Bible... Open it up to that passage we read, Matthew 25. If you don't own a Bible, take one of our great church Bibles home with you. Uh, We'd love for you to have that. Everything will also be on the screen behind me. For a bit of context, we are jumping into a passage where Jesus is teaching in the form of a parable, and he's telling us about the upside-down nature of how things really work, the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. So we read in verse 31, when the Son of Man, that is Jesus, comes in glory and all the angels with him. Then he'll sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he'll separate people from another as shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was As you did to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. And this last verse is supposed to be our main takeaway. This last verse is the one we should embed in our hearts. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. The question is, how can Jesus make such a broad claim The claim that the moment you care for someone, even in the smallest way, the moment that you're with the least, you've cared for him himself. We read throughout the Gospels that Jesus saw Isaiah chapter 61 as a kind of personal mission statement. Long ago, the prophet Isaiah prophesied, and he wrote this, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. But the prophet Isaiah wasn't prophesying about himself. He was speaking of a person to come. He was talking about Jesus. And so what is this good news to the poor that Jesus is anointed to bring into the world? In one sense, it's everything that Jesus does. It's all of his actions. Jesus, he heals blindness. He touches lepers. He restores bodies. He makes people whole. He binds up broken hearts. He reconciles people to God. He forgives sins. He liberates the oppressed. He releases the tormented. He loves the outcast. He welcomes the marginalized. He dwells with people. You see, the good news to the poor is the reversing of poverty through a grand welcome into the kingdom of God, free of charge. And he still does this. Do you believe that? That Jesus is still in the business of proclaiming good news to the poor, that this good news is not relegated to the past, but is an ever-present reality that we can experience here and now today. But I also want us to see that this good news for the poor is much deeper than just what Jesus did for the poor. It's so much more than what Jesus did for the poor. If we move elsewhere in Scripture for a moment, We read in Philippians chapter two, we read this. Although Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped or a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What St. Paul is telling us is that To preach good news to the poor, Jesus had to begin a descent. He had to begin a downward trajectory of emptying himself, of becoming the least. We read that he became human, that God became one of us. C.S. Lewis tries to illuminate uh, the profundity and the shock of this. He writes this, The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe, became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think of how you would like to become a slug or a crab. And if the parallel of being a slug or a crab isn't shocking enough, God not only became human, but he also took on the form of a servant. God came into the world and took on the lowest social status that you could possibly take on. The king of the universe came into the world not to be served, although that was his right, but he came into the world to serve, to be a servant. And if this downward trajectory isn't shocking enough, Paul goes on to say, and he tasted death. The author of life itself came into the world and descended even into the depths of death. And St. Paul really wants to emphasize this, even death on a cross, The most shameful death fathomable in the ancient world. A death that said you were utterly worthless and utterly defeated. This is what the God of the universe came into the world to do. This is how the God of the universe preached good news to the poor. But why is this horrifying descent of emptying himself good news at all? Soren Kierkegaard helps us with his own parable, the king and the maiden. I'm gonna read the whole thing for us because it's just so good. So listen up. Imagine there was a king who loved a humble maiden. She had no royal pedigree, no education, no standing in the royal court. She dressed in rags. She lived in a hovel. She lived the ragged life of a peasant. But for reasons no one could quite figure out, the king fell in love with this girl in the way the kings sometimes do. Why he should love her was beyond explaining, but love her he did, and he could not stop loving her. One day there awoke in the heart of the king an anxious thought How in the world is he going to reveal his love to this girl? How could he bridge the chasm that separated the two of them? His advisors, of course, told him that all he had to do was command her to become his queen, and it would be done. For he was a man of immense power. Every statesman feared his wrath. Every foreign power trembled before him, and every courtier groveled in the dust at the king's voice. This poor peasant girl would have no power to resist. She would have to become the queen. But power, even unlimited power, cannot command love. The king could force her body to be present in the palace, but he could not force love to be present in her heart. He might be able to gain her obedience this way, but coerced submission is not what he wanted. He longed for intimacy of the heart and oneness of spirit, and all the power in the world cannot unlock the human heart. It must be opened from within. So he met with his advisors once again, and they suggested he try to bridge the chasm by elevating her to his position. He could shower her with gifts, dress her in purple and silk, and have her crowned the queen. But if he brought her to his palace, if he radiated the sun of his magnificence over her, if she saw all the wealth, pomp, and power of his greatness, then she'd be overwhelmed. How would he ever know if she loved him for himself or for all that he had given her? And how could she know that he loved her and would love her still, even if she had remained only a humble peasant? Would she be able to summon confidence enough never to remember what the king only wished to forget, that he was the king and she had been a humble maiden? Every alternative he came up with came to nothing. There was only one way. So one day, the king arose, took off his crown, relinquished his scepter, Laid aside his royal robes, and he took upon himself the life of a peasant. He dressed in rags, scratched out a living in the dirt, groveled for food, and dwelt in hovel. He did not just take on the outward appearance of a servant, he became a servant. It was his actual life, his actual nature, his actual burden. He became as ragged as the one he loved so that she could be his forever. It was the only way. His raggedness became the very signature of his presence. His raggedness became the very signature of his presence. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself. Jesus' raggedness became the signature of his presence. He impoverished himself for our sake. Jesus shared in our poverty, and it was love that sent him into the world to become poor for our sake. And this is why Jesus can say, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. You see, this is the extent into which Christ descended and emptied himself, and shares in our poverty, that he so identifies with our poverty that the way we treat the poor is the way we treat him. And so when you buy someone who's hungry a meal, when you give a bottle of water to someone who's thirsty, or you provide clothes to those who need them, or visit and tend to the needs of the sick, or take time to meet the imprisoned, Jesus says, you're caring for me. You're doing these things as if you're doing them to me. Now, if we look at the response of the people in the parable. They're taken aback. Look at verse 37 through 39. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? You see, the righteous, they're surprised. Like, when did we do this? I don't recall doing this, Lord. They were just helping in simple ways and their help was quite uncalculated. They were just going about living life. There's a story from the fourth century about a man named Martin of Tours, uh, who one day became a bishop but first started out as a Roman soldier and a Christian. And on a cold winter day, he was entering the city of Rome and a beggar stopped him begging for change, but Martin of Tours had no money. But he saw that this man's lips were turning blue and that he was shivering in the cold. And so he took his tattered Roman uh, army cloak and he cut it in half and gave half to the beggar. And he did it for no other reason than he saw another human being in need, turning blue, shivering, and it was the least he could do. But the next night, Martin of Tours had a dream. And in the dream, he saw the heavenly places filled with angels. And in the midst of the angels was Jesus. And Jesus himself was wearing half of the Roman soldier's cloak. And one of the angels came up to Jesus and he said, Master, why are you wearing that old battered cloak? Who gave it to you? And Jesus said, my servant Martin gave it to me. You see, when we talk about the practice of being with the least, we're talking about meeting people in their poverty and in simple ways. And in this practice, we're connected to Jesus, even if we're unaware of it. Jesus says, you might have no idea in the moment that you're serving me, but trust me, you're serving me. But the question is, how do we put this into practice? How does this become a practice that defines who we are as a people? Because as we see in this parable, the people are not intentionally setting out to be with the least, are they? It was a natural expression of their faith. It's how they lived, and they're surprised to find out from Jesus that they were truly serving him. But it would be a mistake to conclude that we should not intentionally seek to be with the least. Because we have to assume that Jesus is teaching this parable and instructing us about this because he wants to inspire us to live this way because this is the way of his kingdom. He wants us to see that what we do to others is not just to them, but unto him. But I think before we talk about how do we practice being with the least, we have to acknowledge that if we're not careful, our presence with the least can be more damaging rather than helpful. So here's a primer on what I do not mean and what we do not mean when we talk about being with the least we do not mean that somehow superior people descend down to inferior people and care for them. We don't mean that. Nor do we mean that the materially impoverished are somehow a project for wealthier people to fix. Nor do we mean that Jesus has somehow been absent from the poor. We never bring Jesus anywhere. Jesus is already present. He's already at work and You better believe that he is with the poor because as some scholars say, God has a preferential treatment of the poor. If you want to find Jesus, you're going to find him with the poor, not in your loft in Yale town. Well, you'll find him there too, but you get what I mean. So then the practice of being with the least, it's this practice of connecting with other human beings in our mutual poverty or our shared poverty. That's what we mean. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? He emptied himself. He became poor for our sake. And this is our model. This is how we're to practice being with the least. Because all of us, in some capacity, are impoverished. That's the first shift that has to happen in our mindsets. You know, Scripture addresses all kinds of poverty. There's spiritual poverty. We have an am- amassed a debt of sins that we cannot repay and so that's spiritual poverty. We need God to forgive and to reconcile. But there's material poverty, a need for physical provision, be that shelter or food or drink. You know, there's societal poverty, a need for unjust social systems and orders to be broken, systems that contribute to keeping the status quo and enforcing social divisions. That's societal poverty. And then there's bodily poverty, a need for sickness and disease to be healed and bodies to be made whole. There's all these forms of poverty. And poverty in Scripture is always some sort of absence of wholeness and goodness. It's a lack of shalom, which means peace, but it's more than peace. It's a wholeness and goodness and peace permeating and saturating all areas of life. And so Jesus came into the world to proclaim good news to the poor. And this doesn't just mean material poverty. It means all forms of poverty, that God came into the world to say there's a new world order possible in these areas of poverty and I've sent my son to share in that poverty and to redeem you. So when we talk about being with the least, here's what we do mean. We first have to discover and encounter this good news for the poor for ourselves. There is an area of poverty in your life that you don't want to recognize, but that you must recognize. in an area of poverty that maybe as I'm talking about right now, you know exactly what it is. It's a need that you cannot meet, but it's a need that Jesus will gladly meet for you. You see, no person stands so tall as to be, on the, to be beyond the need of God's grace and help. No one's life is so put together to be absent of all forms of poverty. And so we must encounter this good news to the poor for ourselves, we must have this encounter of grace. Because in some capacity, we all have a need that only Jesus can meet. But the practice of being with the least is connecting then with Christ in our mutual poverty. It's the humble work of meeting the needs that we are able to meet, or at least being present if we have nothing to offer. So it might be offering a cup of water or offering friendship or opening your home, Whatever it may be, in doing it, you know what you're really doing? You're acknowledging someone else's dignity. That is the work of being with the least. No one is so impoverished to be unworthy of the presence of God. No one is so impoverished that they're not worthy of human connection. In fact, they are so filled with dignity that Jesus himself associates so deeply with them that he says, as you treat them, you treat me. Can you think of a greater dignity than that? The practice of being with the least is dignifying people, not condescending to them, not fixing them, but showing them their immense worth and helping them in simple ways and learning and and engaging. So what does this practice mean for us as a church? That's a good question I think we should ask. You'll notice here at St. Pete's, our strategy isn't top-down. We don't have some social justice ministry. We don't don't have any big programs that you can join. Instead, we want to empower the body. And so here's how we do it. Uh, We have community groups. And they gather throughout the city. If you've never been to St. Pete's, a community group is anywhere from eight to 20 people who meet once a week in someone's home. And they do life together. And they go through a set of rhythms. And one of these rhythms we call outwards. So once a month that group partners with a local organization to care for people that are you know, outside their usual boundaries, to care for people who are different than them, to engage and to partner with that organization in caring for the least. That's how we do it here. And it's through this rhythm that we hope to practice being with the least. Many of the organizations our groups partner with are either low-income housing societies or community homes for the people who are often neglected in society, like the elderly or the disabled. And what we do is small. Anyone who's done it knows this. We usually meet, either mutually cook a meal and share that meal together, or have a games night, or just listen and build relationships. It's nothing spectacular, but it's deeply meaningful. But here's the challenge. We run very detailed surveys, as many of you know. And every year so far, our surveys repeatedly show that many of us see this outward rhythm as the least essential to our groups. It's actually the rhythm in which we have the least participation in a given month. So most people are going to be glad to have an upward rhythm where we study scripture. You can rest assured people are going to show up, which is good. People are going to show up for the inward rhythm where we we meet together to share one another's burdens, to hear what's going on in one another's life. And then outward comes, and suddenly no one's responding to the email chain. This is what happens. We have data to show it. We talk to our community group leaders. This is what's happening on the ground. Now, please hear me. I'm not pointing out this area of weakness to shame us. I'm not. I'm pointing out this area of weakness because it shows that there's a huge and beautiful opportunity for us to grow. And you don't need to wait for us to tell you what to do. Sometimes that's what we want, right? We just want the church to organize something and do something and then tell us about it so we can feel good by association. You don't need to wait for us to tell you what to do. You have everything you need to go out into the world and be with the least. So start doing it. Dream and brainstorm with your community group. Or better yet, the best thing you could do is partner with the organization and listen to the needs as they describe them. Talk to the residents. Ask them, hey, only two of you have been showing up each week. What, what would be actually be helpful where more of your community would want to be involved, where they'd feel like we're caring for you and serving for you well? Partner, listen and learn and get creative and pray and listen to the Spirit and then start working together. Because when we embrace this rhythm, when a community group actually serves in the outward rhythm, beautiful things take place. Beautiful things take place. One community group later shared her perspective of serving at Broadway Lodge, a care home and community for seniors and adults with disabilities. And she wrote this to us. From our first night where we wandered around the halls aimlessly, counting down the minutes until we could leave without seeming rude. Anyone's experience." To the last week, in which we led a chapel service and had follow-up conversations with residents to check in about life, ailments, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and faith, it's hard not to think there's something holy happening in the dining room of Broadway Lodge on the fourth Wednesday of the month. We're blessed to be part of it and formed by it as well. I love that. Now, Broadway Lodge is a distinctly Christian community. That's why they're doing chapel. We're in other communities where we don't do things like that. We just serve a meal and we build relationships. But the practice of being with the least is an invitation to expand our boundaries. Because in our city, if you live outside of downtown, the barrier between the rich and the poor is immense. You can go weeks and months without seeing someone in a different social economic status than you. That's the way our city has been designed. And so being with the least is a practice of making room in our lives for people who are different, who may face different challenges, but who matter to God just as much as you do. And the practice, it might be simple. Hosting a games night, cooking a meal, offering friendship, offering a listening ear. It's nothing spectacular, but it is significant. And yet, even beyond our community group's responsibility, each of us carries a personal responsibility to be with the least. That's what this parable is teaching us. You're not going to stand before Jesus. He's going to be like, hey, you're in this community group for part of your life in Vancouver, BC. How is your outward attendance? I mean, he's not looking for gold stars. He's going to look at your life and say, look, how is this practiced in your life? We all carry a personal responsibility to be with the least. And we will be surprised by what Jesus can do if we simply pray, Lord, we are willing, show us. Lord, we're willing, show us. And so I want to try that together. Close your eyes. Let's pray together. Come Holy Spirit. Who is in our life that is in need? Is there a man begging for money in the same space that we could offer kindness or a hot drink? Is there a coworker who seems isolated and sad that we could invite to lunch and share friendship with? Is it a family member or friends who are struggling that we can pray for or make time to call? Is it someone on the bus or at school or as you walk in front of this building? Is there a place, Lord, that you want us to share our time and to serve to give our resources come holy spirit show us someone you would like us to treat with kindness and love and care as you have loved us amen did something come to mind for some of you someone some place I want you to hold on to that. To actually follow through on that. It's important. But do you see, this doesn't have to be difficult or hard. Because the moment you come to Jesus and say, I want to proclaim good news to the poor. I want to be a part of your presence of loving and giving people dignity. Do you know how eager God is for that sort of prayer? Wait, you're, you're, you're not praying about the Bentley anymore? You want to be with the poor? Great! If we listen to Jesus, and we need to, it's dire if we fail to practice this. It's dire if we fail to practice this. Jesus continues in his parable in verses that I'm sure many of us wish weren't in the Bible in verse 41. And did not minister to you. Then he'll answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if you're taking issue with this passage, I inv- invite you to take issue with Jesus. These are his words, not mine. And Jesus is very clear. The day of judgment will not simply be a theological exam. I'll do my best to help you crunch for that exam, but it's not going to count for much. Jesus, the king, the judge will ask, did you offer me food? Did you offer me a drink? Did you welcome me? Did you clothe me? Did you visit me? In other words, did your faith in me translate into love for others? Were you enamored with ideas or with finding my face in the face of the poor? A few weeks ago, uh, the documentary about Mr. Rogers, Won't You Be My Neighbor, was released. Has anyone seen this yet? Woo! All right, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet, but I read a really compelling review. If you don't know who Fred Rogers was, he had a great television show Uh, called Mr. Rogers, and uh, if you didn't know, Fred Rogers was actually an ordained Presbyterian minister, and the winsome and compelling way he lived his life was derived from his faith. He's very honest about this, and in the movie, Mr. Rogers' widow, Joanne, uh, recounts a question he asked her while he was on his deathbed, and he asked her this, am I a sheep? It's in reference to this passage, of course, which begins with God separating the sheep from the goat. And in case you missed it, you want to be a sheep, not a goat. (laughs) Am I a sheep? What an amazingly vulnerable question. The reviewer wrote, whatever you think of Fred Rogers, he was undoubtedly a kind, generous, patient, caring man. He's almost universally affirmed as one of the nicest men ever in public life. Nice even to the point of being hated by many for being too nice. (laughs) He had given his life to making children feel cared for, valued, encouraged, and he did the same for many adults as well. His wife and kids confirmed that the man we saw on the screen was the man they had at home, that it wasn't an act. He really was a kind and gracious person. But in facing death, Fred Rogers knew he would have to give an account to his judge. And he was uncertain enough of his own inherent goodness that he asked, am I a sheep? Am I good enough? And as we felt the weight of this passage, is anyone asking the same question? Am I a sheep? Am I good enough? Here's what we need to remember. We will never be good enough ever not by our own effort not by the deeds we do this is just not going to happen for us some of us we know that but it crushes us we know that but it crushes us because we know we're never going to be good enough for this judgment and we're afraid and we feel ashamed Because we know no matter how much we do, we'll never be Fred Rogers. And if he's worried, we better be worried. (laughs) On the other hand, there's people here who look at your life and you think, I'm going to pass the bar. And you look at this and you're too confident. And that's just as much as a problem. Neither of these responses are what I think Jesus wants for us. Jesus wants us to look at this judgment and say, Good Lord, will I ever have done enough? But then he wants us to cast ourselves at his feet for mercy. Because we have to remember that he is the good shepherd. He cares for his sheep. He came into the world to lay his life down for the sheep in our spiritual poverty. So when we know we're not good enough, Jesus says, I know. You're good enough for me because I've laid down my life for you. And I am good enough for you. Do you understand? When we stand before Jesus, when he evaluates how we live our lives, he's not trying to discern whether all our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. He's trying to discern if we ever truly encountered him. If we ever really acknowledged him as Lord, because when you do, when Jesus meets you in your poverty, when you realize you are not good enough and he loves you and tends to you and meets you, forgives you and reconciles you and walks with you and cares for you and tends to you and is, always has his eyes on you, when you accept that, when you believe the good shepherd's voice, the most natural response is to love others in their poverty the way you've been loved. So I want to remind us, please hear me on this. Jesus did not give us this parable to crush us. He did not give us this parable to burden us with a burden we could not possibly bear. And he does not want us to be with the least in fear of punishment. You need to hear that. He wants us to be with the least out of love. We've experienced his love and we're so filled with love that we love others the way in which he's loved us. And so I want to remind you, the help Jesus is looking for is not exceptional. In the church, sometimes we're really bad about this. We highlight all the amazing stories and we start feeling crushed by them. The help Jesus is looking for is simple. It's meeting people in the everyday needs around us. Water, a meal, visiting someone. You can do that. So Jesus isn't saying that every person in this room has to become a missionary or that every person here should quit their day job and join the nonprofit sector. What he is saying is that every single one of us has something we can offer to someone else in a way that affirms their dignity and demonstrates his good news for the poor. You never have to go it alone because Jesus walks with you by the power of his spirit. He'll catch your attention. He'll say, hey, do you see that person? Go and ask them how you can help. He is with you always. And he'll help you take that next step, whatever it may be, wherever it may lead. And so as a community, acknowledging that this is a practice where there's room for growth, let's commit to this prayer together. It'll be on the screen. I want to encourage you to to write it down on your phone, in your phone, or on a piece of paper. Lord, help me to see your face in the needs around me. Help me to serve you in all forms of poverty just as you served me in my own.